You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. The Constant is brought to you by Industrial Artifacts. Are you building a new office, looking for a cool style for your restaurant, or maybe you're just trying to nab a conversation piece for your home or apartment? Industrial Artifacts is the place for you. They've got more than 20,000 square feet chock-a-block with vintage lighting, seating, tables, advertising, and other found objects, like antique railroad station sconces, a Wurlitzer electric piano that I would absolutely die for, and a mid-century oxblood leather couch that is so classy it would forcibly eject me if I ever dared try to sit in it. Whether you're outfitting a hip new bar or searching for the ultimate work desk or fabulous kitchen table, Industrial Artifacts has you covered. I dare you, I positively dare you to go to industrialartifacts.net without finding some dreamy new home or office decor to obsess over. It can't be done. They can deliver worldwide and even personally to those who live in Chicagoland. Hey, that's me! So, go to industrialartifacts.net today and start drooling over the coolest one-of-a-kind items out there. Stop me if you've heard this one before. An unsuspecting nation, after a hard day's work, tunes in for a little light entertainment. But their night is interrupted by a series of frightening news reports outlining chaos, violence, and war. The public is seized by panic, calling around to wherever they can, the police, local officials, newspapers. For hours, or even in some cases days, Hapless listeners fear that death is waiting for them, out in the streets, the fields, around every corner. And what is responsible for this mass hysteria? A radio show. No, not that radio show. This one came 12 years before Orson Welles and his Mercury Theater of the Air made their infamous prank. And it aired in England, not America. Hey, that's two irrational panics in one season, England. For a country whose most famous sayings are stiff upper lip and keep calm and carry on, not a good track record. There are other differences between this radio hoax and its more storied descendant. Rather than a sci-fi apocalypse, the fiction spun on January 16, 1926 was a broad satire. Of Britain and British politics generally, but the recording style of the BBC specifically. 
But maybe the saddest difference between today's subject and the War of the Worlds is this. The War of the Worlds survived. You can find a recording of it through a simple Googling. Meanwhile, the OG radio hoax is lost to the sands of time. Totally destroyed. If you wanted to know about this incredible piece of forgotten radio history, it'd take some work. You'd have to track down a copy of the script in the rare book section of a nearby university library. Then you'd have to try to sneak into that library because you're not a student of that university. Then you might be kicked off campus because university security isn't like it was when you were in college. You'd feel dejected and defeated, shuffling home in a foot of frozen snow, ready to give up. Then you'd have to remember that you have a friend on the faculty of said university, and you'd have to bribe him to temporarily misappropriate the rare book so you could transcribe it. And then, if you wanted to go the extra mile, you could hire a local actor, bonus points if he's British, to recreate the script for you, which you could then air on your podcast. So... That's what I did. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Broadcasting the Barricades. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. If you had tuned into BBC Radio on Saturday, January 16th, 1926, at just around 7.40 in the evening, here's what you would have heard. Amid much that was regrettable in that movement, this at least is to be put down to its credit, that it opened the way to a readjustment of literary values and a higher sense of the possibilities of human achievement. <clears throat> In 1926, radio was still kind of a novelty, and a surprisingly low-tech one at that. Maybe you think of early radios like I do. Huge pieces of furniture lined with mesh speakers and dials that the whole family would sit around listening. But for most of the English public in 1926, that sort of vacuum tube radio receiver was still years away. They were introduced around 1920, but were super expensive and just didn't catch on quickly in the British market. So if you were listening to this coughing fit and the almost indecipherable literary gibberish that preceded it back in 1926, you'd probably have a crystal radio receiver. Now, crystal sets didn't have external speakers or amplifiers at all because they didn't have power. They weren't plugged into any kind of electrical outlet, instead passively receiving signals which you had to carefully listen for in your very quiet headphones. And you had to fiddle with the frequency to try to keep the signal at all, periodically losing it and picking it back up. So maybe you'd have just thought the station had been dropped when things went silent for a second. Or maybe you'd have thought it was just a regular programming break. 
What you probably wouldn't have thought, though, was that the tail end of the lecture you just caught was the beginning of an unprecedented practical joke. We're off to the races already. London calling. That was Mr. William Donkinson lecturing to you on 18th century literature. Mr. William Donkinson. We are now continuing the news bulletin since half past six. The test match. The test match was as follows. Australia, 569 for seven wickets. The English team, it will be remembered, was all out for 173. Plucky Waterman saves life at Chiswick. This morning, at a quarter past ten, shouts of help were heard from the embankment close to Ponders Row, Chiswick. James Bates, a waterman whose attention was called to the cries by a bystander, jumped into the water and rescued Susie, the five-year-old daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Holmes of 17 Sunbury Place, Chiswick. The little one is believed to have fallen into the water accidentally while playing. The unemployed demonstration. The crowd in Trafalgar Square is now assuming threatening dimensions. Threatening dimensions are now being assumed by the crowd which has collected in Trafalgar Square to voice the grievances of the unemployed. Mr. Popplebury, the secretary of the National Movement for Abolishing Theatre Cues, has been urging the crowd to sack the National Gallery. The desirability of sacking the National Gallery is being urged by Mr. Popplebury, secretary of the National Movement for Abolishing Theatre Cues. Um, one moment, please. London calling. Continuation of news bulletin from reports which have just come to hand. The crowd in Trafalgar Square is now proceeding, at the instigation of Mr. Popplebury, Secretary of the National Movement for Abolishing Theatre Cues, to sack the National Gallery. The National Gallery was first erected in 1838 to house the famous Angerstein collection of pictures and has been considerably added to since. A new wing designed by Mr. E. M. Barry R.A. was added in 1876. It contains many well-known pictures by Raphael, Titian, Murillo, and other artists. It is now being sacked by the crowd on the advice of Mr. Popplebury, Secretary of the National Movement for Abolishing Theatre Cues. That concludes the news bulletin for the moment. You will now be connected with the band at the Savoy Hotel. Ah... I hope you don't mind if I take up a seat at the Savoy here and listen to the tunes for the rest of the episode. This is the Savoy Havana Band. You, as a regular British radio listener, would have known them well because they were the house band for BBC Radio, and BBC Radio was the only station in the UK. You might also have been used to bizarrely effete and badly produced lectures like Mr. Donkinson's and weirdly uninformative news bulletins peppered with out-of-place historical details, because these were all regular features of the time. In 1926, the BBC was controlled by the post office, and the post office was under the thumb of the newspaper industry, which made up the bulk of the mail. Newspapers were really nervous about this radio thing. It had the power to potentially scoop them on any and every big story out there. If people heard the news out of Parliament on their radios, or the day's stock market performance, or the latest sports scores, they might cancel their subscriptions. But how could this be avoided? There was no way to publish broadsheets faster than a radio wave. So the press lobbied the post office to nail down some strict limitations on what could be put out over the airwaves. The BBC had to wait to report any news in depth until after the evening edition of the papers was out. No stock reports, no cricket scores. When they made live broadcasts of horse races, like the Derby, 
they had to take pains to not describe who actually was winning. And as for news wires, they were provided to the BBC directly by Reuters News Service, to be read verbatim and without indulgence. At the same time, the government thought that radio had an obligation to edify and educate the public. So while the actual news value delivered to your ears was spotty, you were sure to find all kinds of sundry bits of superfluous trivia, be it by lecture programs or even in jammed into the news itself. Hello, everybody. London calling. You will now be given the weather report for tomorrow. The weather report for tomorrow, now beginning. Fine, generally, with occasional showers in the south and a continuous downpour in the north. The wind will be violent in England and in Scotland will probably assume the dimensions of a hurricane. High tide at London Bridge, 7.15. That was the weather report for tomorrow. Continuation of the news bulletin. The test match. The latest weather reports from Australia announced that a light rain is falling and the wicket will probably be somewhat sticky when the Australians take the field tomorrow morning. The unemployed demonstration. The crowd is now pouring through the Admiralty Arch and is advancing towards the back of the government buildings in Whitehall in a threatening manner. The Admiralty Arch is being poured through by a crowd lately collected in Trafalgar Square and the back of the government buildings in Whitehall is being approached in a threatening manner. The Admiralty Arch, designed by Sir Aston Webb, was erected in 1910 as part of the National Memorial to Queen Victoria. One moment, please. The crowd has now collected in the neighbourhood of the artificial water in St James's Park and is throwing empty bottles at the waterfowl. Empty bottles are being discharged by the crowds at the waterfowl on the artificial water in St James's Park. So far, no casualties have been reported. That concludes the news bulletin for the moment. Sir Theophilus Gooch, well known for his many philanthropic schemes, will now address you on the housing of the poor. A lecture on the housing of the poor will now be delivered by Sir Theophilus Gooch, KBE. Sir Theophilus, it will be remembered, has for many years been chairman of the Committee for the Inspection of Insanitary Dwellings and speaks with authority on his subject. Eh? What's that? One moment, please. From reports which have just come to hand, it appears that Sir Theophilus Gooch, who was on his way to this station, has been intercepted by remnants of the crowd still collected in Trafalgar Square, and is being roasted alive. Born in 1879, Sir Theophilus Gooch entered the service of Messrs Goodbody, the well-known firm of brokers. He very soon attracted the notice of his employers. However, nothing was proved, and Sir Theophilus retired with a considerable fortune. His retirement did not mean idleness. He has been prominent during the last ten years on many committees connected with social improvement. He is now being roasted alive by a crowd in Trafalgar Square. He will, therefore, be unable to deliver his lecture to you on the housing of the poor. You will be connected instead with the Savoy Band for a few minutes. God, it's just brilliant. I can't tell you how much I love this piece. From the stupid names, to the endless rephrasing and repetition, to the asides and explanations that are so vexingly misprioritized, and the little throwaway gags that he just runs right through. He very soon attracted the notice of his employers, however nothing was ever proved. That is a delicious line. So who's behind this little bit of genius? 
Father Ronald Knox. Father as in priest. But a thoroughly unconventional priest, if you couldn't tell. Knox started as an Anglican minister before converting to Catholicism in 1919. Before his admission to Oxford in 1907, he was already a published writer, kicking up collections of verse in English, Latin, and Greek. In 1912, one year out of uni, he was chaplain at Trinity College. His conversion later convinced the great poet, philosopher, author, and critic G.K. Chesterton to jump sides. Knox's work in apologetics and theology are seminal for the 20th century Catholic experience. But wrestling with the mysteries of God and creation just wasn't enough to keep Knox's mind occupied. So he wrote papers in the style of Swift and Swinburne. He wrote detective stories. And he wrote satires. In 1911, he made fun of German biblical analysis by writing a phony study of the Sherlock Holmes stories, in which he argued that all the tales after Holmes went over the falls with Moriarty were the product of the whiskey-addled imagination of a despondent Dr. Watson, wishing his friend would come back. A lot of Arthur Conan Doyle fans missed the joke, and he was still receiving calls to participate on Sherlock Holmes' discussion panels a decade later. To Knox, the parody was obvious. And for all his genius, he couldn't understand how other people weren't as smart as him. Hello, everybody. London Calling, continuation of News Bulletin. Famous film actress arrives at Southampton. Miss Joy Gush, the well-known film actress, landed this afternoon in Southampton. Interviewed by the press, Miss Gush said she had had a capital crossing. Unemployment demonstrations in London. The crowd has now passed along Whitehall, and at the suggestion of Mr. Popplebury, Secretary of the National Movement for Abolishing Theatre Queues, is preparing to demolish the Houses of Parliament with trench mortars. The use of trench mortars for demolishing the Houses of Parliament is being recommended by Mr. Popplebury, Secretary of the National Movement for Abolishing Theatre Queues. The building of the existing Houses of Parliament was begun in 1840. The designs were those of Sir Charles Barry. The structure roughly forms a parallelogram, 900 feet in length by 300 in width. The internal decorations, frescoes and statues are deservedly admired. The building is made of magnesian limestone from Yorkshire, a material which is unfortunately liable to rapid decay. At present, in any case, it is being demolished with trench mortars under the influence of Mr. Popplebury, Secretary of the National Movement for Abolishing Theatre Cues. The three towers are 300 feet, 320 feet and 346 feet high, respectively. The clock tower, 320 feet in height, has just fallen to the ground, together with the famous clock, Big Ben, which used to strike the hours on a bell weighing nine tons. Greenwich time will not be given this evening by Big Ben, but will be given from Edinburgh on Uncle Leslie's repeating watch. Uncle Leslie's repeating watch will be used for giving Greenwich time this evening, instead of Big Ben, which has just fallen to the ground under the influence of trench mortars. One moment, please. Fresh reports, which have just come to hand, announce that the crowd have secured the person of Mr. Wotherspoon, the Minister of Traffic, who was attempting to make his escape in disguise. He has now been hanged from a lamppost in the Vauxhall Bridge Road. One of the lampposts in the Vauxhall Bridge Road has been utilised by the crowd for the purpose of hanging Mr. Wotherspoon, the Minister of Traffic. The crowd is now returning along Whitehall. One moment, please. 
The British Broadcasting Company regrets that one item in the news has been inaccurately given. The correction now follows. It was stated in our news bulletin that the Minister of Traffic had been hanged from a lamppost in the Vauxhall Bridge Road. Subsequent and more accurate reports show that it was not a lamppost, but a tramway post which was used for this purpose. A tramway post, not a lamppost, was used by the crowd for the purpose of hanging the Minister of Traffic. The next three items in our programme are unavoidably cancelled. You will now be connected up with the Savoy Band again. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It never occurred to Knox that his radio performance would be taken seriously. And from here, it's easy to understand why. The character names alone are silly, and their positions, secretary of the national movement for abandoning theater cues, I mean, come on. And he says it over and over. But the BBC in 1926 wasn't just trustworthy, it was boringly so. Nobody had ever heard a joke on their radios before, or at least not a good one. And fears of communist uprisings were high. There were worker protests all the time, while everybody knew that Bolsheviks had managed to storm and destroy the Russian aristocracy nine years ago. It was thinking about how dryly and ineptly the BBC would cover such an emergency that inspired Knox to write the piece in the first place. Still, at this point in the story, most listeners were on the fence about what they were listening to. What pushed the thousands of panicked Britons over the edge was a relatively new and still underutilized innovation in radio storytelling. Sound effects. Hello, everybody. London calling. The Savoy Hotel has now been blown up by the crowd. That noise which you heard just now was the Savoy Hotel being blown up by the crowd.
at the instigation of Mr. Popplebury, Secretary of the National Movement for Abolishing Theatre Cues. One moment, please. The more unruly members of the crowd are now approaching the British Broadcasting Company's London station with a threatening demeanour. A threatening demeanour is being exhibited by the crowd which is now approaching the BBC's London station. One moment, please. Mr. Popplebury, Secretary of the National Movement for Abolishing Theatre Cues, with several other members of the crowd, is now in the waiting room. They are reading copies of the Radio Times. Good night, everybody. Good night. And then, music. Just music. No further word for more than an hour. In the course of 17 minutes, Ronald Knox had destroyed the National Gallery, Parliament, and Big Ben. He'd killed off the Savoy Havana Band and then disappeared. Hundreds phoned the Savoy Hotel, some checking to make sure loved ones were okay, others to ensure their reservations didn't have to be changed. Newspapers received hundreds of calls too, demanding further word on the riot that they had just heard destroy London. Speaking of London, people began to flee the city in droves, trying to get out to the country before they were swallowed up by the revolution. And government got the panic too. Local police in Newcastle urged the mayor to set up barricades at the town border. The navy was beset with requests that they send a battleship up the river to London to fight off the rabble. Naturally though, the most attention came to the BBC, which was totally engulfed in calls. People ringing in from all over the nation and as far as Ireland to ask what was going on. And when they were told that it was all a joke, their panic quickly turned to rage. At 9 o'clock, the managing director of the BBC, John Wright, ordered the station to broadcast an explanation. Some listeners, it said, who heard only part of Reverend Father Knox's talk at 7.40 this evening, did not realize the humorous innuendos underlying his imaginary news items and have unease as to the fate of London, Big Ben, and other places and objects mentioned in the talk. As a matter of fact, the preliminary announcement stated that the talk was a skit on broadcasting, and the whole talk was, of course, a burlesque, and we hope that any listeners who did not realize it will accept our sincere apologies for any uneasiness caused. It then concluded, London is safe, Big Ben is still chiming, and all is well. However sincere the apology was, it didn't do the job. Remember, the broadcast had concluded, seemingly, with the BBC being destroyed, and then an hour of contextless music had followed and people were having to dial into their crystal sets with headphones. Anybody who earnestly believed the revolution was at hand had almost certainly given up on the BBC well before the explanation aired. They would have to wait until the morning, when the Sunday papers would finally clear things up. Except, when the worried woke in the morning, there were no papers which made it officially time for everyone to keep nuts and carry guns. Saturday night, there was a heavy snowfall in and around London, 
and it crippled the Postal Service's ability to deliver papers to much of the countryside. So it would take until Monday morning for the fear to finally, fully subside. Replaced, predictably, by ridicule. The Monday papers all led with the story of the hoax, in part because it was a great story, in part because it was a great argument for papers over radio. Opened page two, and the reporting gave way to blistering editorials. The Daily Express wrote, The British Broadcasting Company has lent itself to a practical joke of a particularly foolish character. Why it should seem funny to a priest to insult the working people of England by representing them in the act of dynamite outrages is one of those problems we do not pretend to have the ability to solve. MP Leo Money said the BBC should be ashamed of having included it in their program. Knox, for his part, never accepted any blame. As with the Sherlock Holmes piece years before, this was a joke, and he couldn't understand how anybody could have fallen for it. The Daily News offered one argument for how. Apart from the novelty of radio and the paranoia of the times, they chalked it up to Knox himself, in a fashion. A joke is never so dangerous as when it is a good joke. The pearl-clutching of the printed press did little to manacle the BBC. For every outraged and flummoxed article, the general public only came to love the story more. The station took tallies of positive to negative calls and letters. In a month, the praise outstripped the criticism tenfold. Oh, but there's one more newspaper response worth noting. On January 19, 1926, the New York Times published an editorial explaining the incident. Of particular interest to the Grey Lady was the government monopoly of the BBC, which the article took as chiefly responsible for the panic. If England had had a free market system with a number of radio stations competing with one another, the public would never have been fooled. The title of the piece was, We Are Safe From Such Jesting. It turns out, we weren't. But you already know that story, right? Dollars to Donuts says you don't. Not really. But you will if you join us next week for our season finale. Is there life on Mars? Side by side, we travel along. We may seem right, but we may seem wrong. Music for today's episode by Blue Dot Sessions and the Savoy Havana Band. The biggest of special thanks to my very own Ronald Knox, actor, director, choreographer, and Chicago theater's favorite British expat, Nick Sands. Special thanks also to Paul Slade, whose research and writing greatly aided the telling of this story. And a smaller, but still quite substantial thanks goes to everybody who's rated, reviewed, and subscribed to the show. Next week, that thanks could belong to you. Go find us on Twitter at at Constant Podcast and on Facebook.com slash The Constant Podcast. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where on September 30th, 1938, one month before the War of the Worlds, WGN Radio premiered The Crimson Wizard, which convinced hundreds of people an evil genius named Ivan Molokov was setting fire to the city. This has been The Constant. Thank you.
secret identity of the Crimson Wizard's name was Peter Quill. Like Guardians of the Galaxy Peter Quill. But I can't dredge up anything that shows that uh, he was named after him. I don't think we're going to need to <laughs> keep that extra at the end. It sounded more interesting to me <laughs> before I said it aloud. No, let's just try let's say it one more time. This time, as though it's fascinating. The secret identity of the Crimson Wizard was Peter Quill, as in Star-Lord, Guardians of the Galaxy. But I can't find any documentation that shows that one led to the other. Nope, still pretty boring. Still pretty boring. Let's just fucking cut. Thank you.